All right, let's pray real quick before we get started. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we get to gather together as your church. And uh, open your word and study it and see what it is that you are are hoping to teach us this morning. And God, we're going to go through a lot of material and it's really easy to get super distracted by lots of the details that we could focus on in these verses. But God, I just pray that, that we wouldn't be lost trying to figure out all the details, but that God, we would be trying to understand why it is that you are giving us this passage, why it is that you're giving us this teaching, what it is that we as the church are supposed to to understand based on this. And so God, I just pray that you would give us um, focus and that you would send your Holy Spirit into this place and fill us up uh, so that we could um, have a miraculous understanding of what your word is teaching us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Could we close that door? That'd be awesome. I appreciate what Johnny's doing, but I don't want him to preach this sermon over me. Because he'd probably teach it way different than me. So this is one of those sections in Matthew that could very easily be a six to eight week series all on its own. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 24. Um, I remember when we went and did this years ago when we were still at Heritage and we were teaching Matthew in community groups... Uh, I think we were in Matthew 24 and 25 for like eight or ten weeks. I mean, it was, it was a long time going into all of the details and everything that we could get into in this. And we really didn't want to get into that much detail um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, it's just so much. And we would be in it for so long. I think by the time we got, like, we would lose sight of what the context is that we're talking about. Like, we're in Jesus' last week, but if it takes us two months to go through, you know, half a day of Jesus' last week of ministry, I think we would kind of lose sight of what all is at play, what all is happening. And also, I think, like I was praying before, I think it would be really easy for us to get lost in the details. To really easily get bogged down with, well, when is this person coming back and how is this thing going to happen? And I'm going to make mention of some of the things because this whole chapter is very end times focused. Very, very future prophecy and how that's going to affect the church at some point or is affecting the church right now, depending on how you read these things. And it's very easy for us to say, well, it's time to wheel out the whiteboard and start drawing timelines and pictures and connecting dots from here to there. And it would be very... Um, academic for us to do that. A couple times I'm going to suggest a couple things that you guys might talk about in community group if you want to. If it's like, I would love to just kind of dive deeper into this or just talk about how I'm reading these verses. I'm going to say this is a great community group inspiring section of verses. So, so be thinking, if you have questions and I don't cover them, I'm probably doing that intentionally, but bring those to your community group leaders and say, hey, what do you think about this? And they'll probably go, I have to study that more to get back to you. But that's okay. We can have some discussions. These are really good discussion starter things. Um, So Matthew 24 is going to begin Jesus' final recorded sermon in the book of Matthew. Um, This is is the one that's going to be focused almost entirely on just his people. So at all of these different points, we've talked about the different groups of people that he's been teaching. He's been teaching in front of his disciples, but with followers kind of around them, the crowds and his opponents, you know, the religious people. This this sermon is directed just at his disciples, just the people. He's trying to give a little bit of extra context, a little added understanding to what is going to happen next for them and what they should be looking for as his ministry on earth is concluding. 
So he's done, he's done preaching to large crowds. No more big miraculous healings. No more large groups of followers. No more doing these things to amaze all of these people. We're kind of past that point. Right? He, he's completed that portion of his ministry. Now he's going to have one final real opportunity to kind of pour into his disciples, prepare them for his departure. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 24, uh, just to get a little context, I'm going to read just the first couple of verses here. Uh, verse 1 says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so this conversation begins with the disciples, probably on their commute back to Bethany, right? Because we've talked about on this last week of Jesus' life, they're staying outside of town. Part of their commute would probably be to walk over the Mount of Olives to get back to the place they're staying um, each night before they come back in for Passover each day. And so as they're doing that, they're walking up over this mountain and it gives them just this beautiful wide view of Jerusalem and specifically the Temple Mount area. And if you read in the Mark account of this, they go into great detail talking about, look at the temple, look at how beautiful these buildings are, look at how amazing all of this stuff is. So this is the kind of thing they're talking about. They're looking at these be beautiful buildings and they're saying, man, Jesus, look at all this stuff. Isn't it great? And Jesus says... You're sitting here focusing on these big buildings, but I'm just going to tell you, all of that stuff's going to get taken away. All of that stuff's going to be destroyed. All of that stuff is going to be wiped out. And because they were so amazed at what they said, they follow up with this question in verse 3. It says, As he sat down on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So, there's a couple of layers in that question, and I want us to kind of understand what it is that Jesus is about to start teaching about. Because the initial statement that he made sounded like, that temple is going to be destroyed. And if you are a history buff, or if you've studied uh, Jewish history at all, you'll know that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. It was completely wiped out. When he says, no stone will be left on another, it's because they used gold as the mortar between all the bricks, so that every brick was literally taken off of every other brick so that they could take everything of value away from that building. It was completely wiped out. And so Jesus is kind of offering a forecast of this is what's going to happen. And if you've been listening to his teaching the last couple of weeks, uh, a big focus on what he's been saying has been um, my fo the focus of the mission of God has been kind of going through Israel. And, and the central focal point of Israel has kind of been the temple because that's where the presence of God sat. But like we studied the last couple of weeks, he said, I'm moving on from you. You have, you have rejected me. You have not followed the things that I've said. And now I'm moving on. And so part of that is not just going to be that God's removing kind of the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We talked about that idea. It's not just that he's kind of taking away their responsibility and their religious leadership for the rest of the world. But he's going to take the temple away from them too. Like the thing that they hold to as the symbol of this is who we are as a people. This, this represents all of what we define ourselves to be. The temple, the sacrificial system, everything the law gave us. And so what Jesus is reminding them is all of this is getting taken away. It's not just that the authority is being taken away and that we're going we're gonna to start going out to the nations with this mission and this message. But I'm taking away even the symbols and the things that you look to and you think how beautiful that is. Isn't it awesome that we get this amazing temple? He says... All of this is going to be taken away. 
So what Jesus, so the question that the disciples are asking kind of has two purposes. And, and he answers both kind of together because the answers are related. Um, he wants them to know, they want to know about this destruction of the temple that he's asking about. Like, when's this going to happen? That sounds really bad for us, right? So they're asking kind of a short-term fulfillment. When's that going to happen? But then they also say, because they know that he's been explaining to them and teaching them and he's about to leave, they're saying, when are you coming back? When, when will all of this get fixed? And when won't we have to worry about this anymore? And I think the way Matthew kind of recorded this question and the structure um, is very intentional because I think it, it, it speaks to, and we've talked about this with prophecy before, how a lot of times when you read prophecy, there's kind of a double fulfillment. It's like they're, they're talking about something that's going to happen really soon. So in this case, it would be the destruction of the temple. But there's also something that it's, it's got a bigger, more long-term picture and in this case, it's talking about Jesus coming back and a lot of the things that we're going to read about in his answer in just a minute that are going to happen during that time before he comes back. So there's a short-term fulfillment, and Jesus is going to explain both that and the long-term, which is the more apocalyptic part. Um, so let's go ahead and look at what Jesus has to teach about before he returns. And, and, and in case you're like, why do we even bother studying end-time stuff? Like... It is what it is, right? That's a lot of times, and that's, I, I remember, I always remember, you know, there, you could be a, a pre-trib or a post-trib or a this or that or that, and I remember Reggie at Heritage used to always say, I'm a pan-millennialist. Uh, I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. That was kind of his position on the whole thing. Uh, so I'm stealing his thing because, yes, that is true. We don't have any control over how Jesus is coming back, but there's a reason that it's worth studying, and if you read Revelation, Revelation 1-3, I think it's going to be up here, it said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So we're being told it's important that you study these things. It's important that you read these things out loud and you, and you try to understand what these are going to be. Because and, and when it says blessed, that word can also be translated as happy. Like you're happy to understand about why Jesus is coming back, and you're going to be happy to understand about how your life is going to be affected and maybe happy to know what it is that's required of you during that time that we're still waiting for him to return. So before we get too heavily into his answer, and I'll read a little bit more in just a second, uh, I just want to give kind of a quick overview of kind of three major ways that people read a lot of this kind of end times prophecy stuff that we're going to get into, because they're kind of three big ways that you can interpret it. And I just want to kind of give us all an overview because you might find yourself in one of these camps and I'm not trying to pit camp against camp so that we can have a, a you know, battle to the death over how the end times are going to work out. But I just kind of want you to understand different ways that people read this and I'll kind of tell you which way I read it too. Um, so you've got three ways. You've got some people who are saying Jesus here is only talking about this, that short-term fulfillment, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. He's just talking about before he comes back, the temple's going to get destroyed and the whole system's going to kind of get shattered. That's one view. Uh, then there's one view that says that a lot of these things they're going to follow lead up to a very literal seven-year period where Jesus is going to come back, take the church. There's going to be a time of great tribulation. Really bad stuff's going to happen on earth before Jesus comes back. If you ever read the Left Behind series, which many of us did as we were kids, it was like, it was supposed to be seven books, and then I think it ended up being 20 because they started making lots of money off of them. So they got really detailed really fast. But they were interesting books. But if you read those, that was kind of the theological position of the Left Behind series for those of you who grew up in church reading those books. Um, 
And then there's this last one which uh, believes that a lot of what Jesus is talking about, the, the bad things that are going to happen, the, the way the world's going to fall apart, kind of take place throughout the church age. And when I say the church age, I mean after Jesus died and was resurrected and left the church in charge, gave us the mission of kind of taking the gospel wherever we go. And that all of these things that he's going to talk about kind of take place during this long church age. And then at the end, Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. Just so you know, that's, the, that's kind of where I am. Now, I have a lot more studying that I can do on this. And we can have a lot of conversations about these sorts of things, either over lunches um, or in community groups or whenever we see each other. We can talk about these sorts of things because I'm still processing a lot of this stuff too. But that's kind of where I am. So the way I even wrote it in my notes is, this is the position I currently hold, I think. Who really knows? That's kind of where I am on this. So we're still, we're, still, we're still studying. We still don't have all of this figured out. And I don't think we will until Jesus comes back. So let's go ahead and just read his response. I'm going to read a big chunk of this next chapter uh, and just kind of see some of the things that he describes about. And then we'll try to see what it is that we as the church are supposed to be pulling out of this. So I'm going to pick up in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, right? Like, just, you got that, right? I think that's basically what he's saying. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for, for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather." That's some interesting language right there at the end, too. All right. So, big point number one. And, th and here's the thing. This is why I want us to look at the big picture and not get into all the details. Like, what is it really going to look like when this happens? Or what's it really going to look like when this person, when this abomination of desolation and all this, like, 
I don't want us to get distracted by those little details. I want us to kind of understand a couple of big picture ideas. The first big picture idea, and this should not be surprising, but that the world is going to get worse before Jesus comes back. I think by reading those verses, we kind of get that picture, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. So, and, and, and this, is, this is worth noting because there are people in our culture right now who are saying society is continually getting better, we're becoming smarter, we're becoming more effective at doing the things we do, we're working towards better things and things are going to continue to improve. Things are always getting better. But what, but what Jesus is saying here is that is not true. All that we're doing is falling farther and farther into the sin that corrupts everything about us. We're just getting darker and more evil and more creative at coming up with ways to disobey God. And, and we're going to continue to see that more and more often. So here's a few specific things that are mentioned. You're going to see false messiahs. You're going to see people coming up saying, I am Jesus. Maybe not even that specifically, but maybe people coming up and saying, I have the solution. I have the way for you to be saved. I have this means of you to attain salvation that is not rooted in the gospel that is not rooted in what Jesus called us to and left us with. We're going to see wars and calamities. We're going to see, and, and, and I think you, you would have to literally be under a rock all the time to not see this taking place now, right? You're going to see wars and all sorts of things happening. It says wars and rumors of wars. I mean, I think every day if you turn on any news outlet, doesn't matter which one you frequent, it's going to show you either some actual war taking place or some tension that is building to some sort of war that's about to take place at some place in, at some point in the world. And then last, he also talks about the suffering of Jesus' disciples. Like, it's not going to get better for us as a church. I know we, we hit that idea a lot, and I don't want it to sound like we're trying to always be downers, but this is the reminder that he constantly has to give us. Don't think that just because you've signed up with Jesus is all of a sudden it's perfect and wonderful and everything's happy and you never feel pain. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. He says, hey, things are going to get tougher on you. It's going to be worse. Some of you may be killed. You're going to be hated because you're going to have a message that's offensive to the rest of the world. But what he says is before, all of these things have to happen before Jesus comes back. And that was an interesting thought to me because, because we always hear... Um, I, at least I always heard it said, uh, you know, growing up, I'm going to tell you what, Jesus is coming back soon. He's going to come back in my lifetime. You know why? Look at all this bad stuff that's happening. All these wars. Every, somebody has that person that they know that's always told them, Jesus is coming back. It's about to happen any minute now. But here's the thing. He emphasizes that all of these pieces, war and pain and suffering and people claiming to have a different means of salvation other than Jesus, all of these things that are taking place are just the beginning, right? That doesn't mean it's right before Jesus comes back. That's just the start of the process, right? This is, he, just, he describes it as, as the beginning of birth pains, which um, I have not birthed a child, so I really cannot speak from any, any level of experience here, only what I have observed third person. And that is that he says, the beginning of birth pains, not delivery pains. And there's a difference Right? Because the start of the birthing process can take place a very long time before there's actually a baby and a fainting dad. <laughs> right? Before you get to hear the, the sweet little baby cry and they hand you the baby and you're, oh, 
let's take some pictures. Before that, there's typically a long period of time. I mean, you could even look at all of pregnancy as that long period of time building up to you where there's lots of discomfort and pain that's, that you kind of have to deal with. Not speaking, again, not speaking from experience, but I can just imagine that it was probably not at 100% of the time a super pleasant experience. But this is what it is that he's saying. He's saying, I'm not saying that when these things happen, I'm about to come back. He's saying, when it starts to get bad, when it starts to hurt, just know there's more to come after that. This is the beginning of it. This is the, kind of the start of the process. You're going to have to go through these things for a little while. And he mentions the prophet Daniel in his response, um, which I think is worth us going back and reading. Because he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, I'll, I'll just read you the verse that he's talking about. It comes from Daniel 9, 27. And it's talking about this, this evil leader who's kind of t come to power. And it says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What? Right? Which I love that, Ma that Matthew follows it up with, let the reader understand. Like, that's so helpful. Thank you. Like, you remember when he said that? Just, you understand. You're good? Good. Glad you're good. So I'm just going to move on. No, I'm not. But from this verse, this is the verse that specifically leads many people who are in kind of that literal seven-year period where we're talking about a great tribulation that's going to take place over the course of seven years. This is the verse where they, where they kind of build that theology. Because they're saying, when he's talking about a week, he's talking about seven periods of time, or in that case, seven years. And that, that halfway through that, three and a half years in, that's when you're going to have this, this, this literal evil antichrist who's going to come and who's going to who's going to declare himself to be God while sitting in a newly rebuilt temple and he's going to have cut this deal with the rest of the world and they're all going to kind of start to worship him as God. And, and, and I don't, I'm not going to try to make an argument against that. I mean, honestly, that's what I was raised on and that's kind of what I thought for a long period of time. The other way to look at it could be that when you see the number seven in scripture, that number tends to mean completion. Like, it's finished, it's accomplished. Like, that's, that's the whole number, wholeness. And I kind of read that as if it could mean when the time of the church age, when the time after Jesus has left us and it's gotten worse and worse and there's been wars and rumors of wars and pain and suffering and people declaring themselves to be like Jesus and, and all of these things, when that time has kind of reached its completion. That's another way that you can read it. And that's kind of where I'm sitting in here where he's saying when, when that week that Daniel's talking about, or when that long period of time, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, right? He's saying, you're going to see all this stuff happening, and he's going to send you out to run into the desert, and he's going to say, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of scatter you around the world. It's only going to happen for a set amount of time, and I think that's worth being reminded of. I might come back to this, but I mean, he says in here... Um, in verse 22, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Like, the fact that, that Jesus knows there is an end in mind for the suffering and for the pain should be an encouragement to us as his people. Right? There comes a time when you reach day seven, when you reach the end of that week, and you know, I mean, think about, think about like a crazy work week, right? No matter what, by the time you get to Friday, the weekend will be here. Right? 
Sometimes it might be you're getting ready for a vacation and life is going to be crazy and hectic until you get to the vacation. It always feels like this for me. Right before I actually go on vacation is when I feel like I need it the most. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. But it's like, if I can just get to this point, there's going to come a point where no matter what, I'm done with experiencing this thing. And now all of a sudden, I get whatever this reward may be. Maybe we can go back to the, to, to the birth analogy, right? No matter how how difficult that process may be, there is going to come a point where in just a few minutes, that's going to be done and I get to hold my baby. You will eventually get through that. It is a finite thing. I can come up, I'm coming up with like 100 metaphors for this in my head right now. Like, no matter what, my run will be done in less than 10 minutes. You know, like that feeling, right? And I think that is an encouragement that Jesus is giving. Like, if this just went on forever, it would be miserable. But because I love you, for the sake of my people, I'm going to cut this off. It's going to have a time where it ends. And I'm kind of reading that out of Daniel 9, where he's saying, there's going to come a time where this is going to end. Yes, this is going to happen, but after that, there's going to come an end. I'm not trying to build an argument for it, but I I just, I love the, the picture of the message that Jesus is giving to his disciples right there and all of these specifics are talking about not just a specific group of people at a very limited time, some point in the future, and he's talking about those people are going to experience this, but I love the idea that this message he's delivering for his disciples in the near future, dealing with the destruction of the temple and everything, but then he's also dealing with the entire body of Christ throughout the rest of the church age until it is that he comes back. I love that picture of him kind of speaking to all of us so that it might not be that we're here during the time he's coming back, but we're going to experience all of these things that it is he's describing. And and I think we see all of those things happening, but we get this kind of reminder that that he's going to take care of it. And I think it's worth going ahead and reading. Um, There's one other place that kind of talks about this in the New Testament in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, You can turn there, or if you want to, it'll just be up on the screen. But, But I want to go ahead and... Because, again, I feel like we're going really fast through this. But I want us to understand the big picture. And I think 2 Thessalonians kind of helps give us a big picture of why Jesus is giving us this. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, this is 1 through 12. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That's not the Star Wars rebellion. Just making sure, not that rebellion. Different rebellion. Unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. I'm going to read that sentence again, because this is the big picture. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that what they may be believe so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. A lot of words in there, but here's the big picture because he says it right at the beginning. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. We don't need, as believers, to be afraid of these things. The bad stuff that's going to happen, the wars, the, the rumors of wars, the false messiahs, the, the, potential, the potential threat on us, the, the hatred of the world. We don't have to be afraid of these things because God is firmly in control over all of it. Good and evil. That's why I went back and read that sentence again, because he's saying, yeah, evil is present in the world, but only a little bit right now, because you know what? God's in control of that too, and he's holding it back, and he's going to let it go. He's going to let things get worse. He's going to release these people into positions of power who are going to be evil and do all sorts of wicked things that are going to be offensive to God, but he's only letting them do it because he's willing that it happen, and in the end, he's going to be the one who's going to destroy them when Jesus comes back and says, that's it. We're done. He's in control over allowing the evil to be present, but he's also in control over being able to remove it at any point he wants to. And so I think one of the things that Jesus wants us to understand as he's teaching these things, and I think he's trying to say to his disciples, yeah, it's going to get worse, but I'm still in control. I'm still taking care of this. There's still nothing you need to be afraid of. It might not always be fun, but I'm still going to be here. I'm still going to be with you. Because here's the good part, and I'm back in Matthew now, in 24, I'm going to pick up in verse 29, because he says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so after all of this has been happening, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Stop right there. So here's the big idea. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be a big deal. Like, we always try to find, oh, well, I think he's going to come back now, and I think he's going to come back at this time, and everybody's had a prediction. Right? I think I, think I heard a, like 10 or 12 people say, oh, he's going to come back in 1998 because that's 666 times 3. That's when he's coming back. Well, then why didn't he come back in 666 times 2? I don't know. I'm not going to do that math right now off the top of my head. I just remember 1998. I'm not going to do it. When he comes back, it'll be a big deal. And it's going to be a big deal for everybody. Saved or unsaved, right? Because he mentions both. When he comes back, for everybody who's still in sin and who's rejected Jesus and said, I'm not in with that, I don't believe in that guy, I'm not, I'm not trusting him, this is not going to be good, right? It's kind of that same idea as like when you're, I, I never did this, I never did this. But like if your parents are gone and you throw the party and everybody's over, I never did this because I didn't have enough friends, which everybody nods, and I'm a little bit sad by that. But it's that idea of like, you're having the party, and then your parents come home, 
and you know you're in trouble because you know I'm not doing what I should be doing, right? It's that idea. This is why it says when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know, right? He described it as like lightning reaching all the way across the sky. You're not going to miss it. So when somebody says, oh, he's hiding in this room, come see Jesus, that's not him. Because when he comes back, the whole world will know. It will be a big deal. And if you are in Christ, this is the best thing ever because he says he's going to gather all of his people together. It says from the four winds, meaning all across the earth, all the nations of the world will be gathered together. Meaning that by the time he comes back, the Great Commission will have worked. The nations will know who he is. There will be saved people from all across the face of the earth that will be gathered together and brought to him. The Great Commission is going to be accomplished. But this is a scary time for those who are not in him. And that's why it says they will mourn. They will be, they'll be sad because he's back and they realize, yeah, that wasn't me. I wasn't in it. So here's Jesus' real challenge for us. Here's the real thing that he wants. If you, if you want action points from this passage, it comes in this next section. Picking up in verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as, we, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in part what, the, what night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We'll stop there. So here's what he's saying. Practical application. Don't think you know when Jesus is coming back, first of all, because you don't. No one does. We'll see the signs, but nobody can know, oh, this is it. It's bad enough now. This is the time. It could not, get, it could not possibly get worse. Jesus is coming back today. He says that's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to figure it out. I think it's fascinating that not even Jesus at this point knew when he was coming back, right? He says, not even the Son, but only the Father. I think this is a cool picture of Jesus reminding us that, that he set aside all of that, all of that being a godness up in heaven. I don't know how to say that. That's the best way. But he gave up all of that and came down and limited himself for the sake of us. He became a human, and as part of that, he allowed some of what he would know to be limited for our sake. He didn't know everything that the Father knew at that point, which I think is a really cool just reminder of just the level of sacrifice that he went to on our behalf.
So how arrogant would we have to be to think that we can figure out when Jesus is coming back when Jesus couldn't even figure it out while he was here? So that's, that's the first one. Don't, don't think that we can figure this all out on our own. That's, that's far too arrogant of us. But here's the big idea. We need to be on watch. We need to be awake, right? He says, if, if you knew somebody was going to come rob your house tonight, you would probably sit up and keep the lights on and wait for them. And, and that would probably show that you're ready, and then they probably won't rob your house. That just makes good sense. If you know this guy's going to come steal from you, you're probably going to keep an eye out. You're not going to be like, oh, well, I guess he's going to steal from me tonight. I guess I better go to sleep. I'm tired now. That doesn't make any sense. What he says is, you know these things are going to happen. You know that I'm coming back. So as my people, live like I'm coming back. Be a part of the body of Christ. Be a part of this mission that I'm about to leave you with here in chapter 28. All of these things. We could talk about the mechanics of these verses where it's like two guys are working in a field. One's gone and one's left. It reminds me of that song. Uh, DC Talk covered it at one point. There's no time to change your mind. I wish we'd all been ready. Thank you. I've had it stuck in my head all week while I've been working on this. We could talk about that in light of these verses, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the reason that Jesus is giving us these verses. It's not about people disappearing and leaving their clothes behind, which is how it's always pictured, why Jesus can't take us with our clothes. It's not about that. It's about realizing that there are people who are going to be ready when Jesus gets here, and there are people who are not going to be ready when Jesus gets here. And he's saying, you guys need to be the ones who know I'm coming and you're ready. Your lives need to look like you know I'm coming back. If you knew your parents were coming home that night, you probably wouldn't be throwing that party at your house, to go back to that example. Right? You wouldn't put yourself in a position where you're going to be embarrassed when Jesus comes back and you get busted. So the real question is, knowing all of these things and knowing what it's going to look like for both sides, right? Because it's not like he painted a cheery picture for those people who are ready for his return, right? He talked about it. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be painful at times. But for those people who, who live like his people, who are his, his family, his body of Christ, his church, those are going to be the ones who, when he comes back, they're going to get gathered together and brought in with him. So the real question, and I think the biggest point that we can make out of this whole chapter right here is just to ask, which of these groups are you in? Are you ready for Jesus? Are you living like you're ready for Jesus? Are you looking at the signs and things that are going on around you and you're being afraid and defeated by them? maybe even scared into submitting to them so that you don't have to feel the same pain and suffering that the people who are all in with this feel? Are you more tempted to take that easy road? You know, to kind of, I'm going to tap out. I don't want to experience that part. I'm going to just do this thing. Or are you completely in, fully committed, and are you ready for when Jesus comes back? Let's go ahead and pray.